Welcome to the Director's Chair, a Lowy Institute podcast. My name is Michael Forleylove and I'm the Executive Director of the Lowy Institute. On the Director's Chair, I sit down with political leaders, policymakers and commentators in order to understand what's happening in the world. I'm delighted that my guest on this episode of the Director's Chair is Marcus Wallenberg. Marcus is one of the most interesting figures on the international business scene, a fifth-generation member of the Wallenberg Swedish business and political dynasty. Members of this storied family have served as foreign ministers, ambassadors, and, of course, international business leaders. Along with his cousin Jacob, Marcus leads the Wallenberg Group, which has significant interests in companies including SEB Bank, the defence contractor Saab, and the telco Ericsson. Marcus has also served in many other capacities, such as the chair of the International Chamber of Commerce, a board member of AstraZeneca, and an international advisory board member of the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. I met Marcus through the advisory council of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, on which we both sit. And back in pre-COVID days, I would see him once a year at the annual meeting of that council in London. I always enjoyed speaking with Marcus, and even though he doesn't do a lot of interviews, I resolved to get him on my podcast, and he agreed. So thank you, Marcus Wallenberg, for joining me today on the Director's Chair. Thank you, Mike. Great to be here. Marcus, to start with, just tell me a bit about the Wallenbergs. Over the generations, your family has remained very involved in the businesses in which you've invested. Why do you do this? What's the secret to keeping the family together? Well, we started as bankers in 1856. Before that, the family served the church in various capacities. And a naval officer going ashore and started bank along Scottish lines and used the deposits of the, 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 the customers of the bank to help companies uh, and projects uh, develop here in Sweden. So really during the late 1800s, part of the uh, industrial, the Swedish Industrial Revolution, if I may. Uh, Sweden at the time was an extremely poverty-stricken uh, country. So we, as a country, come from very humble beginnings. But I think the bank took a very strong view to develop fundamental businesses. And in 1916, when the bank had taken positions in various industrial companies in trying to save them, uh, over the years, you were not allowed to be a bank with uh, industrial holdings. So the, the bank was split in two. And then there was an investment holding arm formed with the same ownership and a banking arm formed. And in 1917, a great uncle of mine started a foundation, which he had no kids, which is supporting education and primarily research here in this country. And that foundation is very important for the research community here, but also is one of the holding vehicles for all the interest that we have in the business world. I say that because this is, I think, one of the reasons why the family has stuck together. In the Swedish context, nobody is an owner of a foundation. So there has never been a quarrel about who will get wealth mm. in this family. Mm. So those of us who have been participating in continuing to work in the family business have been doing it in support of 
the foundations, which in turn is in support of Swedish research and education. So it has been a choice by each family member mm. if you want to serve that way or if you want to go off on your own. Mm. And you were earmarked from a young age to lead the group along with your cousin, Jacob. What was it like being entrusted with this responsibility at a young age? We were always told by our grandfather that don't count on anything, young men. Uh, you, you should mm. uh, perform better than everybody else if you're going to be part of this. Mm. Uh, and he actually was very firm on that issue. Mm. Uh, and, and, but he helped us along, of course. He introduced us to international business people and his contacts and uh, gave us a lot of advice along the way. But in those days, I mean, I'm not that old, but I'm more than 60. And when I and my cousin, we were brought up, it was, of course, more of a society where you did what you were told. Mm -hmm. We uh, did that. But I think that the most lucky some question for Jacob and myself has been that we have really enjoyed what we've been doing. And I think that is something we're also talking to the next generation about, mm. that if you're going to do this, you really have to enjoy it because it's not the nine to five job. Mm. Now, Marcus, throughout your life, you've always had strong links to the United States. You did your undergraduate degree at Georgetown University in Washington. I think you worked as a young banker at Citibank in New York City. Tell us a bit about your American orientation in your own life. And as someone with a strong interest in America and many American friends, how were the, the four years of the Trump administration for you? I, I think that at the time when I was uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, spent my time uh, living in the United States, I came away as a young person with a very, very strong feeling of taking responsibility of your own life. There are a few places that I've been to where the educational system and the people I met, at least, put so much support into young people's lives and, at the same time, very high demands. Mm. And that combination, saying it's your responsibility, you have to perform, and I'm going to help you to do it, that was really the attitude at the time. Mm. And then... The entrepreneurial pioneering feeling of the American people was something that struck me and which has helped me in my life uh, throughout. Mm. That you are actually, if you want to achieve something, you should view it as an opportunity and a chance to do it rather than seeing it as an obligation. And that, I think, has carried me that has also carried me in the way I thought about our kids, that I think that it's been extremely important for them. And all of them have spent a shorter or longer time in the United States educating them or training or living. And I think having that experience uh, have been very, very helpful to me. I think some of the attributes will never go away. The entrepreneurial pioneering way of thinking in the United States will be there. I think we should never underestimate the United States because uh, it has a tendency to come back to some of its true North aspects. And I do think uh, when I came at the time, it was the end of the Carter presidency. Uh, and then Ronald Reagan came in. 
it was a, a remarkable shift. Mm. Uh, and it's been a difficult period for many reasons for the United States uh, in the past few years. But I feel that the country has such tremendous strength mm. deep down that it would surprise me if it doesn't come back to some of its very important roots and values and, and finding its true mm. north. Well, we've seen a huge amount of change even in the past two or three months, haven't we, Marcus? I mean, it was only on the 6th of January that there were riots on Capitol Hill at the instigation of President Trump. And since then, there's been a transfer of power to President Biden. What kind of a start do you think the Biden administration is off to? Well, first of all, you know, I'm not a political scientist, but I, I, I think one should learn from history that in other countries where things like the, the, the Capitol Hill, what happened up there, one has to be very careful not to take that kind of a way of handling political unrest uh, very lightly because it might go in the wrong direction. So I, I think that was very good that one really took that seriously. Uh, the Biden administration, in my view, has started out in a way that I think is more the way I remember my time in the United States, both uh, caring and which has, you know, through this extremely big stimulus bill that just was passed, mm -hmm. uh, the focus on the pandemic, uh, opening up and trying to find ways to uh, work together with the outside world is something that, of course, I, being a free trade uh, advocate, uh, feel is extremely important. Mm -hmm. And I think that the first early signs of what that administration is now at least saying that they're trying to achieve, uh, I think, has a lot of good potential for the world. Uh, some fundamental issues are still there. Obviously, the relationship to China mm -hmm. uh, is, of course, one that will, I think, for all of us, be extremely important to keep an eye on, uh, even mm -hmm. though it's a new administration in Washington. Mm. Well, let me ask you about China. China is very much on Australians' minds. As you know, Beijing and Canberra daggers drawn, and we've felt China's displeasure over the last six or 12 months in particular, but a lot of countries are having difficulties in their bilateral relations with China. How is China viewed in Europe at the moment, would you say? Are European minds shifting on China? I think China uh, in this part of the world is taken extremely seriously. And it's not only an economic matter, because, of course, China is important for many of the economies and many of the companies over here. And therefore, one should be really cognizant of the fact that this is an important market, an important source of technology and trade. And that, of course, impacts everybody's uh, way we think about our relationship to China. Mm. I lived in Hong Kong in the mid 1980s. And I learned that if you shouldn't underestimate the United States, you certainly shouldn't underestimate China. Mm. And I also think that we have to be, as Europeans, we have to realize, at least I realized, that it took me some time to understand how little I understood. Uh, because mm. it's a different way of thinking. There are different uh, viewpoints. They very often have an attitude, it's not black or white. 
it's more a shade of gray and there are various ways to look upon things and have an extremely long-term perspective on things. I mean, we, we read about it and we hear about it, but I do have the feeling that what is being done in China and the policies are not haphazard. It's not shooting from the hip. It's really a matter of doing things that they think is the right thing for China in the long term. And therefore, in Europe, I, I do believe that we are now waking up to the fact that what we do here is that if we believe that China is very competitive in many aspects, we better understand we have to be competitive as well. And there are various ways of being competitive. And uh, I think we who are non-Chinese, doesn't matter if you're American or if you're European, we have to understand that we can compete and we can be, you know, doing our things in, in a way that will match the ambitions of China. And, and uh, that's, I think, an important way of looking upon it going forward. You mentioned you lived in Hong Kong and Australians have a lot of affection for Hong Kong. A lot of Australians have lived in Hong Kong and visited Hong Kong over the years. How concerned are you about Hong Kong's future, both for Hong Kongers, but also for the international companies that have for so long thrived there? Well, I guess that what has happened in Hong Kong is something that has been debated for a long time there. I still live with the basic feeling that Hong Kong serves an important role also for China. And it would seem to me that it would be in China's interest to try to have that role continuing in terms of commerce, trade, finance, also for the future for bigger parts of China. And it would seem to me that if they can handle this in a way that you can meet both ends and, and try to have peace and more stability and at the same time, you know, really supporting some of the very important features of Hong Kong, namely this extreme entrepreneurialism, uh, the, the trading mentality, the very ambitious way of doing business. I cannot see anything else that, that could be of, of great interest to China as well. All right, let me turn to COVID, if I may. Uh, and let me first of all ask you about Sweden, because Sweden adopted a, a somewhat laissez-faire approach to the pandemic for much of 2020. How is it in Sweden now? And with the benefit of hindsight, do you think the Swedish approach was the right or the wrong approach to take? Right now, we, we have, I think, uh, if I'm not completely wrong, we're about 10% vaccinated, just past a million out of 10 million. We, I think, like many EU countries, since UK are so much far ahead of the rest of us, but um, I think we're all frustrated that it's not going quick enough. But I, I would also at the same time say that it's an unprecedented speed at which these vaccines have come about. And I, I, I think that is amazing. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, I'm on the board of AstraZeneca, and I've studied quite closely what's been going on here. I think it's just amazing how quick uh, yeah. this, uh, the, the modern technology, uh, the biotechnology yeah. has, has really moved this. But the way Sweden has handled it, well, of course, I think many of us are sad that so many people have uh, died, passed away. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that from that point of view, we, it's nothing that you can really 
except I think we were to a certain extent unprepared for the force of this uh, virus. Mm. And that has really put us in a very difficult position. We are a country where many of our elderly are living in home care mm. uh, environments. And that was very hard hit, mm. uh, unfortunately. And many people who have been immigrants, we've had a big wave of immigrants coming to Sweden in the last few years. I think some of those groups have been hit very, very hard as well. Mm. So it's, it's, it's extremely unfortunate. I think, you know, I, 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 I don't know anybody who don't think that uh, every person who dies, you would, you know, you really want to be without that uh, situation. But yeah, there is a big debate here now. There's been a commission on the question, big debate on what will be, what, what has really happened. Mm. I think politicians feel acutely aware of, of the situation and so on. From time to time, I'm asking myself if, we, if it will impact our elections next year. We'll see about that. Let's focus in a bit on vaccines. Do you think that vaccines will allow us to get back to normal anytime soon? What, what's your feeling on when we'll be able to travel again and sort of live a life that's somewhat approximate to what we used to? I tell everybody to keep a very close eye on what's going on in the UK. Mm-hmm. Since they are so far ahead in the vaccination, mm. I, I think probably UK will be one of the first examples of opening up if this turns out to be very positive. And I think they have been amazing at the speed at which they, they have really gone through this. Um, it would seem to me that we will have to live with these pandemics from time to time going on. Uh, we now know that vaccines can brought forward relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. I think we've all been taught the lesson that we have to be prepared for things like this mm. to much greater degree that this is part of the human beings living on the planet, that uh, it's happened before and it will probably happen again at some point. So we have to learn how to live with this. And uh, we have seen examples of history when, when vaccines have come about to stop other diseases and we've been able to live with those as well, mm. uh, even though they've been present. So I remain optimistic that we as, as, uh, as humans will overcome this as well and uh, continue to live a more normal life than today. But, you know, a number of things have happened. And, and that is, we have learned to live in a much different setting. The fact that you and I are on a line mm-hmm. between Sweden and Australia, the opposites of the world, more or less, mm-hmm. having this uh, conversation and having all these meetings uh, over Teams or Zoom or whatever, mm. Uh, is something that uh, we have to, I think, embrace and, mm. and really use to the best in mm. the future. Because you can really ask yourself how smart it was before to always be on an airplane. Mm. Uh, I, I believe in the in the physical meeting. I think it's extremely important. But I, I do think that we all will think in a different way before we take that extra trip. Mm if we really need to be there or if we can handle these questions anyway. Mm. And that would impact the way we, we look upon it. Another thing that has really struck me is that at least here, we have always debated whether the digital way of doing things and communicating and everything is a generational question. I think the pandemic, at least where I have some insight, no, you know, all ages are now in the digital. Mm. 
the 90 years olds or and the 19 year olds they are using this uh, in in very much the same way mm. and uh, when i see it from a business point of view banking and all these types of transactions it's in the mobile now and and if you can't do it in the mobile it's going to be very difficult to compete uh, so i think humans have a fantastic ability to adapt mm. and do things in a different way and that i think is with all the negative and horrible situation with this pandemic mm. i think this has come through as big revelation at least to me how much we have adapted to try to solve mm. our life situation anyway i agree with that and and i mean if i were to nominate some silver linings in the cloud that i've experienced i've got to spend a lot more time with my family with my kids because i'm not on a plane all the time I think we've focused, I've focused, and many of us have focused on the things that really matter in our lives rather than the frippery. And also, I think a lot of societies have realized that we sort of misallocated value to various professions and, and jobs. And I think all of us have looked with, with fresh eyes at the role that frontline workers and you know, shop assistants and healthcare workers and ambulance drivers and all those people, the huge contribution they make to our society. Absolutely. And I, I, I mean, especially on the care side, I would say, it's amazing what they have done. Mm. You can feel the sense of being horrified of, of that people have not been able to get all everything they, they needed. But gosh, if you think about it, what the people, the ambulance drivers, the doctors, nurses mm. have been going through, it is an amazing mm. job they've done mm. in the past year, soon year and a half. So, uh, yeah, no, I fully agree with you. And, and uh, in, in some of the businesses, uh, those who were sitting, doing a lot of, of work uh, behind the scenes, they have suddenly become the front line mm. towards the customers. Mm. And, and so it's, it's, uh, it's upside down from that point of view, but also the impact of technology. Mm and how beneficial that can be in many respects. So I, I, I think that one of the issues that I, I really, really hope will not be the outcome of this is that we will get more protectionism on trade, that we will not mm. get more protectionism on technology, mm. that we will find a way not to bifurcate or, or have a containment situation on technology because the technology development of the past 20, 30 years, I think, have benefited so many parts and, and such a big part of the population of the world mm. to access technology. If you get into a period of protectionism, I am, uh, it's going to cost more with technology. Competition really fosters the development of technology. And uh, I just uh, hope that uh, the leaders will prevail and support the uh, free trade system of the world mm. and support the new head of the WTO and see to that what trade really does is become a multiplier effect on the economy rather than the opposite. It's not a zero-sum game. It's really about giving more economic development and support for uh, populations of the world. And I, I hope that leaders will uh, stick to that belief. Mm. 
Well, on that subject, when you when you look at the international economy over the next year or two, as we emerge from the pandemic, are you bullish or bearish? There are many signs that it will be a, a bullish period that, uh, you know, suddenly you, you uh, start getting the possibility for people to consume and do things that they have been limited to do in the past uh, year or so. People feel they really want to get out of the house and meet people and do things and and perhaps consume that what they didn't uh, think they had a possibility to do, and they may have saved some money to do that and so on. Uh, so that that would, I think, show many positive possibilities for the future. And and uh, I listen very carefully to our economists here in the bank, and, and they are quite optimistic. I think that the big question Besides the trade question I just mentioned, I, I think also the monetary policy question here would be very, very important. How will, uh, mm-hmm. because a lot of the capital markets and so on have been so optimistic with a huge amount of liquidity in the system, lots of stimulus programs, mm-hmm. very low interest rates, which is unprecedented uh, for those of us who live today. Mm-hmm. That has to be handled with extreme care for that to serve as a as a supportive way forward. And I, I think if you read the statements of the Federal Reserve or the ECB or the Chinese, I think everybody's acutely aware mm. of that balancing act. Mm. Uh, so that that is one of the issues that we have to be careful with. And, and then, of course, uh, supporting a lot of, the, of the, uh, the things that are in place today. But there are two things here which I think has, if you called it a silver lining, which I really think there's a silver lining to it. When we look at sustainability and climate change, that in itself, depending on where you are, on belief, I, I happen to be uh, of the opinion that we will have to do substantial investments, make substantial investments into green technology mm-hmm. and green infrastructure in years to come to be able to counter the climate change. Mm-hmm. And, th- and that will, I think, give us investment opportunities, which can serve as a very, very strong propellant of, of the economies. And I also think we are at a time in science technology that technology investments, if we handle this in the future right and try to stay away of too much protectionist, that can also turn into mm. a generator in the economic field, uh, which is is very very positive if that if that will be taken seriously and th- it will be both green technology, but it will also be a continuation on telecommunication and microchips and and uh, many other things that uh, we have the chance to do. So if this is handled in the right way, avoiding conflict and supporting these possibilities around investments into sustainability and technology investments, we could look at a period which is also could be very beneficial for all of us. So I, I, I really, I, in basic, I'm very optimistic. And, and we all can see the dark mm. possibilities, mm. but uh, in my basic view, I'm optimistic. Mm. What about government debt? Are you worried about the amount of debt that governments around the world have taken on in the last year? It's not a discussion item now. It will be, mm. and depending on how governments decide to, to deal with it, mm. 
because uh, increased taxes will have an impact on economic growth. So we, we, that, that would be a balancing act in itself. And you mentioned the, the threat of protectionism and nationalism. And of course, we're also starting to see that in, in vaccine rollout. For example, Italy last week blocked a shipment of 250,000 doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine to Australia. But we're also, you know, there are many instances of this. And of course, many of us are concerned about the rollout of the vaccines to developing countries. So how important is it that we don't allow protectionism to creep into the vaccine rollout? This is a very difficult question, of course, and and that is that politicians in every country are, of course, under tremendous pressure in this respect. Mm. And uh, we have seen other instances here of protectionism and uh, earlier on uh, in the pandemic before the vaccines were available. Mm -hmm. I believe that we have to find ways to stay away from this form of, of protectionism as well, but I uh, I don't know the case of the Italian situation, but I, I think we have to understand that there is a, a tremendous pressure on politicians right now, and they're trying to grasp every available possibility to serve their voters. And I guess that's really at the heart of it. And I guess that one of the outcomes of this is coming back to the question we had up we discussed earlier, namely, how much do countries have to prepare themselves for this again? Mm. And what do you need to do in terms of producing vaccines and, and things like that in each country? I am basically a non-protectionistic person. I'm a free trader. I'm, I certainly believe in that, and that comes here. But I, I think we're dealing here with issues that are very hard to imagine unless you sit in the government. Speaking of politicians, Marcus, for my final question, I want to ask you about people you've interacted with over the course of your life. Because of the roles that you play, you live a very interesting life and you interact with kings and queens and presidents and prime ministers and business leaders and lots of different characters. It's hard to compare all these different individuals, but are there one or two people who've really impressed you over the course of your life? I've had the chance to interact with Mrs. Merkel, mm-hmm. and she strikes me as an extremely impressive person and politician. Unusually, mm-hmm. so I think she's been a balancing force in Europe. She has done tremendous good. She's re- the, the stability of Europe uh, in the past 10, 15 years, she's played a tremendously important role in, in there. And I, I am deeply impressed by what she has achieved for Europe. And let me see, if I, I think about uh, uh, a business uh, or uh, I, there is a gentleman by the name of John Hennessy, uh, who is now the chairman of Alphabet and was previously the president of Stanford University. Mm-hmm. Also one of those amazingly impressive persons mm. who have, you know, really propelled an already famous and important academic institution into something absolutely extraordinary. Been a scientist, developed his own company, and is now running one of the big, uh, as a chairman, one of the big tech groups of the world. So two persons for you. 
Well, Marcus, I've enjoyed our conversation about your career and your life. You're well known as a business leader, but based on this conversation, I think you might easily have been an excellent diplomat. You told us about your journey from Stockholm to Washington to Hong Kong. Let me say, I hope we see you back in Sydney soon as the vaccines roll out and as life returns to something like normal without, of course, forgetting the lessons that we've all learned during the pandemic. In the meantime, thank you, Marcus Wallenberg, for joining me on The Director's Chair. Thank you, Michael. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. You've been listening to The Director's Chair, a podcast by the Lowy Institute, hosted by me, Michael Fullylove. Thanks for listening, and please tune in to the next episode of The Director's Chair. 